Well, go ahead. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to James chapter 4, and I'm going to go over here and get my Bible while you do that. James 4. Oh, man, I'm going to, I need to win an award this morning for the, uh, man, for the least Palm Sunday message ever preached in the history of Palm Sunday messages. And you can see the title, and you'll know what, what I mean by that. Um, what, a, what a gracious thing, though, for us um, to go through the book of James. And we really have been uh, kind of not taking big chunks. We've been taking all these shorter chunks through it, which means we're really able to tease out a lot of uh, you know, really important things that James was writing to the church that is applicable for us as a church. So we, we keep getting all of this wisdom, and it's not just any wisdom, but it's like a very blunt wisdom. If you've noticed, James just doesn't really mince words. He's not quite as, you know, he doesn't say it as you know, smooth as, as Big R here would say it, obviously. I'm totally kidding. Um, but he just kind of lets us have it. And uh, there's something in our hearts that needs to just be given things very clearly and very uh, simply. Um, I want to start out, man, this morning with just a, a personal illustration about judging your neighbor so that you never think your pastor is trying to be the hero of his sermons, because that's not what I'm trying to be. I want to paint myself in a light that says, oh man, I need the grace and peace of Jesus. I need it. You know, I'm somebody who struggles with judging uh, my neighbor. I, I may have told this story before, but um, man, we had, we had some neighbors. We had some next door neighbors a little while ago. Not the current neighbors we have, Jeffrey and Jenna Steiner. So I need to, I need to settle that because I'm afraid they might think that I'm, well, I'm, I'm calling them out right now and I'm not at all. But we had these neighbors and uh, we lived in this place uh, for about, gosh, I don't know, six or seven years. It was a condo and we had neighbors next to us and it was this couple that was about probably 10, 15 years older than us. And uh, for some reason, we, we just never could connect with them, and they would just kind of, you know, kind of pull up, get out of their car, go in the house, leave for work, and you really wouldn't see them. They always wore black, and, um, and they always, you know, they, they just kind of looked at you, and they looked angry half the time. And um, I remember we just, we, we said, man, we don't know what to do with these guys. And so they, they kind of ended up just getting a nickname from us called The Mean People, Right. And so, uh, you know, I'd get home from work and, and Melissa would be like, oh yeah, no, the mean people just got here like five minutes ago, you just missed them. And I would say, well, it doesn't matter that I missed them because we've only been missing them for like seven years. And it was this whole thing. So, long story short, the day we move, um, the, it was a husband and wife, the husband comes over and he goes, hey, I heard you guys are moving. And I was like, and your name is, you know, it was like one of those deals, right? But I hadn't told him my name either. And he said, man, he goes, I'm so sad that we never got to know each other. And he said, in fact, he goes, he goes I was just working on something in my, in my kitchen. He goes, I'd love to show you like this, this like remodeling thing I was doing. I'm like, what is going on right now? So, you know, he takes me and Melissa over into the house. He like gives us a tour of the condo. He shows us all this work he's been doing. He tells us about his job. Like we're learning all these things about him. He was the least mean person I've met since then, including all of y'all. I'm kidding. But he was like the nicest guy in the world. And it was like, oh my gosh. And we walked out of there. And I remember we're like in our U-Haul truck, like driving to the next town where we were moving. And I'm like, could we have been more wrong about that guy? We even gave him a name, 
right? We didn't say all that dude, Bill or whatever, or Joe or Tom, sorry if your name's Bill in here, but it's like, it was like, no, he's the mean guy. And it just shows you that there's something in us that wants to jump ahead, that wants to take control, that wants to put ourselves in a place where we think we know somebody and we have somebody all ironed out and figured out. So James, what he's doing this morning is he is raising an incredibly important question for us, which is this, who are you to judge your neighbor? Man, nobody wants to be judged, right? Not you, not me, but nobody minds being a judge. And that's kind of what James dives into here. Chapter 4, verse 11, he says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So we're going to just break this down three ways this morning and talk about what judging your neighbor actually is according to James. And the first thing we learn is that judging our neighbor is speaking evil against one of God's image bearers. We learn here that to judge a person is to speak evil against them. It's to slander and to gossip. I like John Piper's definition of slander and gossip. This is what he says. He says, it's derogatory information about someone that you have that is shared with others in a tone of confidentiality that is not motivated by doing good to them and that you are enjoying in a way that shows your heart is not humble. Let me read that again. He says, it's derogatory information about someone that you have that is shared with others in a tone of confidentiality that is not motivated by doing good to them and that you are enjoying in a way that shows your heart is not humble. All right, if that's not gruesome enough, it's helpful to know that the word devil, which is used to describe Satan in the New Testament, is a word that literally means slanderer. So at its core, slander and gossip is something that reflects the character and work of Satan himself. Happy Palm Sunday, right? So, right off the bat here, we are just confronted with a massively uncomfortable truth in the church, which is that slander and gossip, speaking evil of your brother, is not just whispering harmless observations or rumors about others that may or may not be true. But in actuality, it's speaking words from a heart of envy that pronounces judgment against both your neighbor and against God. So when you speak evil against an image bearer of God, somebody that has been made in the image of God by God, what you're saying in effect is, I believe I am qualified to determine the state of your heart before God. So as we kind of get into the depths of this and tease this out, we see that, man, we start really unpacking what slander and gossip is. It goes way deeper than it feels like it's going we're just hanging out, right? And we're saying, did you hear about so-and-so? Like this thing goes way deeper into the core of something that lies in our heart that puts us 
in place of speaking evil, in the place of speaking evil against an image bearer of God. It's the opposite of God's command to love your neighbor as yourself. So speaking evil against an image bearer of God, what it is ultimately is it's a denial of God's sovereignty over a person's life, right? You're saying, I know God made you. I know that you reflect the image of God, but I'm going to determine something about you that I feel like I'm qualified to determine. And it's a denial that destroys fellowship and it destroys unity within the body of Christ, man. If you show me a church that is splitting at the seams and what you're going to see at the core of that church is you're going to see a high level of slander and gossip just permeating the culture of that church. You're going to see undealt with unkindness, verbal unkindness rooted in an envious heart that is just slamming like waves against the hearts and minds of one another. So judging your neighbor, it's speaking evil against a fellow image bearer of God. James doesn't really mince any words, but he gets right into it. He calls it what it is. The second thing he says is that not only is it speaking evil against an image bearer, a fellow image bearer, but it's also disobeying God's law there if you look in verse uh, 11. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Kent Hughes says this. He says, when anyone speaks uncharitably against a fellow believer and judges him, he breaks the law of love, the royal law, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you can't judge the law and be a doer of the royal law at the same time, right? You can't put yourself in the place of God by determining another person's heart and also be loving your neighbor at the same time. Does that make sense? You can't claim to be one and do the other at the same time. You can't be disobeying God's law. You can't be obeying God's law and disobeying God's law by being uncharitable against another brother or sister. Remember James told us in chapter 1, verse 22, he said, be doers of the law. He said, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So we disobey God's law when we elevate ourselves above others by speaking evil against them. And you know what's so insidious about this? Is that we find a lot of ways to justify this when we do it. Like, do some of these lines, let me ask you, I'm going to say some lines here, and, and tell me if some of these lines sound familiar, like this. Like, I know I probably shouldn't say this, but... Or, hey, make sure you keep this here. Or, please don't mention this to anyone, but... Or, I'm only saying this to help this person... But, or I, I know I shouldn't be talking about them, but this is the truth. Like, how many of you guys have been in conversations that have begun that way? How many of you have begun conversations that way? Quite a few. The problem is that speaking the truth, listen to this, speaking the truth about your neighbor behind your neighbor's back is lying to your neighbor. We can fool ourselves into thinking we're being spiritual or we're being insightful when in fact we're being divisive. 
within God's body and ultimately disobedient to God. Only a fool thinks he can fool God and still be faithful to God, right? Proverbs 5.21 reminds us, he says, for a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. So this idea that we can somehow say things, we can somehow whisper behind people's back, we can somehow lower our voice and somehow we think like God's going, wait, can you speak up a little bit because I missed that. Like God ponders our paths, Proverbs tell us. Our ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He sees everything. Every idle word that comes out of our mouth is known by God who, by the way, tests our words. So we get this sense now about judging our neighbor, which is that it's speaking evil against a fellow image bearer of God created by God. It's disobeying God's law. And then thirdly, it's playing God. It's playing God. We've kind of touched on that a little bit. But this is what James says. He says, who are you to judge your neighbor? There is only one lawgiver and judge, and it's he who is able to save and destroy. So what James does here is he brings us back to God and he puts us in our place. He leads us back to who God is, reminding us that to judge our neighbor is to attempt to play God. The problem, of course, with that is that only God has the power and the authority to save and to destroy. So we're putting ourselves in the place of somebody that we have no power or authority to act in the way that only God can act. Right? Deuteronomy 32:39 says this is God talking. He said, "See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no god beside me." He says, "I kill and I make alive." There's only one person that has the power to save and to destroy. Job 40, verses 7 says, Dress for action like a man. This is God speaking. I will question you and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? God asked Job. Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? He says, Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? So there is this sense as believers, as the church, we are constantly needing to kind of pull back and go, hold on. What am I saying with my words that puts me in the place of God and judge over another fellow image bearer? Are, are my words having that effect? Am I playing God by playing with God's words in the way that kind of puts me on a pedestal that says, no, no, I'm the one that is qualified to determine who you are and where you're at and what you're thinking and what's going on and what your story is like. It's an insidious thing. And what's so hard about this is that a divisive church, a church that is just drowning in disunity is one where people are fighting for control because to play God is to be somebody who wants to have that level of control and sovereignty over the people and the events of your life that you just don't get to have it's a church where people are not picking up their crosses and following Jesus they're not laying down their lives 
for one another, but are seeking to elevate themselves above others and above God. James is saying, who do you think you are? That's why we got to love James, because he like says the question that needs to be asked of us and that we need to ponder and to consider. James says, who do you think you are? What do you think you know about a person? Do you know their story? Do you know their thoughts? Do you know their heart the way that only God can know their heart? Now, we say, but, hang on. Isn't the church supposed to make judgments concerning a person's fruit? For example, how do we determine that someone speaking, say, lies unless we exercise some level of wisdom and judgment? Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, He said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He said, You will recognize them by their fruits. So, Yes, we are called to exercise judgment, but it needs to be right judgment. Jesus also said in John 7, 24, He said, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. All right, so let me tease that out. What, what James is describing as evil for us here is not what Jesus just described, which is not judging by appearances, but with right judgment. What James is describing here as evil is judgmentalism, okay? It's judgment for the sake of seeing your neighbor fall in order to lift yourself up. Does that make sense? In other words, it's judgment that ignores the sin in your own life in order to elevate the sin of another. It's like what Jesus said in Luke 6.42. He said, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your own eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your eye? He said, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. So there is a, there is a right kind of judgment that we are to practice as the church. But if we are so blind to our own sin, then we're going to do it in a way that is speaking evil, putting ourselves in the place of God, and ultimately disobeying God. It'll be judgmentalism rather than good and righteous fruit inspection, if that makes sense. Jesus said, can a blind man lead a blind man? It's a rhetorical question, obviously. So this is judging by appearances. And this is what James is getting at. But right judgment is calling out those things that will dilute the purity of the church. That will distort the character of Christ. Things like false prophets, like what he said. Things like murder, lying, theft, adultery. Things that need to be rightly called out and judged unacceptable. But how are those things called out? How do we call those things out? Well, we call those things out with a heart that is always leaning and moving toward restoration. We do it with a heart that is leaning into deep compassion. We do it with a heart that is, that is trying to move towards a person with intentional care. 
Move towards a person with gracious correction. Move towards a person with faithful prayer about what's going on in that person's life. To not just call them out, right? But to bring them in. And so there's a major difference here between us looking at the church and saying, hey, there's some things going on here that need to be rightly judged and called out as opposed to the kind of slander and gossip that seeks to push other people away and hold them down so that we can feel justified and lifted up. So judging your neighbor ultimately is really standing over Jesus. It's standing over Jesus, who, by the way, was the fulfillment of the law. It's standing over the law. It's standing over Jesus, who fulfilled the law, who kept the law perfectly. When you speak evil against your neighbor, you're saying this. Jesus doesn't apply to you. You're saying Jesus is incapable of changing you. You're saying Jesus is not Lord over the sin in your life. You're saying, I see your life and there's no hope for your life to be changed and transformed by Jesus. You're saying your sin is more sinful than my sin and too sinful for a Savior. You're judging the law that Jesus kept perfectly so that he could forgive all those who never could, which is you and me. And by the way, this is really a fear of God issue, isn't it, at the end of the day? Matthew 10, 28, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So when we think about the gift of Jesus Christ. When we think about how He came to earth to save sinners like you, to save sinners like me, it's the week that we're leading into. It's the day that we're coming up to on Good Friday. When we consider the work, the gracious work of Jesus Christ, and yet we stand as judge over the people that He has created in the image of of God, what we're doing is we're denying that work. We're denying that we need that work as much as the people that we are slandering and gossiping against. We're saying that they have a life that I have determined is untouchable by Jesus Christ Himself. That's how serious James is making what he's talking about here. But, the humble person has an ongoing understanding of who they are and who God is. Let's go back to chapter 4, verse 8. Scott preached this last week. Man, Scott just killed it last week. He did so amazing. But here, here's, a, here's part of the passage he preached, which says this, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. 
So one of the outworkings of humility is that we reserve judgment of others for God, who, by the way, is able to save and to destroy. The other, as a humble person, as somebody who is practicing the love of God through a humble posture, it means that we have the affirmation and the identity and the security in Christ to not be slanderous, to not gossip about people, or to tear others down in order to build ourselves up. Why? Because God has exalted us by raising us from the dead to walk in newness of life, like Paul tells us in Romans 6.4. So here's what we got to do with these passages. All right? We need to remember, we need to repent, and we need to rejoice. We need to remember the grace that God has shown us. Remember the grace that God has shown you when you are tempted to slander another fellow image bearer. 1 Peter 2.22 tells us this. Peter says, talking about Jesus, he said he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then he says, by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Remember the grace that God has shown you. And let that pull you back. Let that guard your heart. When you find yourself in a situation where you're either with somebody who wants to be talking about somebody else and tearing somebody else down and judging another person, or you find it kind of surfacing in your heart and coming out of your mouth, remember the grace that you have been shown because it's massive. It wasn't just a droplet of grace, right? We do the little droplets in the little like round jars to like do our Easter eggs. One little droplet and it colors the whole jar. Think of the grace of God being just bucketfuls and bucketfuls and oceans of grace that were extended to you and keep getting extended to you because of His love for you. Melissa told me this story yesterday. She said she was driving on the wrong side of the road. She went down one of these one-way streets, and she's driving on the wrong side, of, you know, driving down the street the wrong way, and she didn't know that. And another car is, like, coming the other way, and they had to do the big, like, swerve around. And Melissa just kind of looked at her and just kind of, like, gave her the, it's okay, I get it, you're driving down the wrong side of the road. And, and she said, like, the, the woman looked at her and kind of gave her the same look. Like, it's okay, like that kind of a thing. And then she literally gets to the end of the street and saw the one-way arrow, and she goes, oh, I thought I was giving her grace. She was giving me grace. But isn't that so like the Lord? It's a picture of Jesus Christ for us, right? What we don't realize is that we have been given so much grace, and we are continually given so much grace. Remember the grace God has shown you. Secondly, remember the grace God is showing others. So all of those buckets of grace that are being poured on you, man, they're being poured on that person. The question is this, listen, are they being poured on that person through you or in spite of you? You have the opportunity to be one of those buckets of grace on your neighbor. 
Remember the grace that God is showing them. And He's going to show it to them despite you or through you. 1 Corinthians 4-5 through says, Therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purpose of the heart. I mean, do you think you need to stand over somebody as judge and juror? You, you think that God doesn't know what's actually going on with that person? You, you think there's something that you're helping God out with when we stand over a fellow image bearer and judge them, judge their heart? Again, that's a denial of the sovereignty of God and the grace that He is showing that person in whatever state they're in, brothers and sisters. And then finally, one of the greatest action steps of obedience that we can take, and this is how we're going to end, is to repent and rejoice. To repent to those that you have slandered Is there somebody in the church right now that you can think about, that you can recall, that you've said unkind things about, that you have torn down, that you've let envy surface, and you found yourself saying unkind, slanderous, and gossiping things about behind their back? Is there somebody that comes to mind just gets all quiet except for the kids. Man, well, I can, th- I can think of somebody. I'm not going to say who. What's our position? Well, our position is to do what we're taught in Scripture to do, which is to go confess our sins to our brothers and sisters. It's to repent of those things that we know are damaging and harmful to another person's character and place before God. Can, can we do that? Is that something that you can think about? Because that act of repentance, that act of humility, is the very thing that keeps us a church that is like this. It keeps us a church that instead of doing this, we do this. We become unified. We stay close. We are bound by the love of Christ and love of neighbor and ground in humility. That's what's happening. The second thing you can do is shut down slander and gossip. When you find yourself in a situation like that, we have an obligation to say, hey, we need to stop. We need to guard our hearts. We need to guard our mouths. We need to stop. Because a church that becomes mired in slander is one that will be torn at the seams in disunity. So repent of those things. And let me encourage you as I'm encouraging myself to do that so that we can rejoice, so that we can rejoice because you have been saved from your own destruction by the power of Jesus Christ. The benefit is that you are not somebody who has the power to save and destroy because you've proven, like I've proven, what you would do if you had that power. You would destroy But thanks be to God that He has saved us by His own power so that we might become children of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him 
we might become the righteousness of God. So here's the call. What are we becoming? Let's become that church that is so guarded against that. And when we even smell the slightest scent of slander and gossip, man, we go before the Lord on our knees and repent. Now, we call that friend or that person that's engaging with it and just go, brother, sister, come to me. Let's stop. Let's go before the Lord. Let's pray. Let's go to our brother and sister and work those things out. If this is something that's causing disunity and discord between me and another brother or sister, let's take those steps. Let's take those active steps of humility and repentance. What a church that would be. You hear me on that? I mean, wow. What an amazing culture that would be if we lived that out. Let me pray. Lord, we thank You for these words. These are hard words. Oh my goodness. And Lord, these are things that we are all guilty of. So Lord, I, I pray... Lord, that You would meet us here this morning. Lord, that You would forgive us for the slander and the gossip, for the judgment. That comes out of our mouth that's rooted in an envious heart, Lord. Lord, we know that these things do not give You glory. They're not pleasing to You, Lord, but it is our battle with sin, with wanting to be the ruler over our lives, to want to be in control, to want to lift ourselves up by putting other people down. It's intrinsic to our plight as human beings and as sinners. But Lord, in You we find forgiveness. So thank You, Lord, that we can come to You now and we can find forgiveness. We can remember the cross as we begin Holy Week, as we day by day get closer to Good Friday and Easter, we can remember the debt that has been paid. Lord, You are not judging us anymore if we have found life in You, Jesus. So Lord, I pray that that character would permeate us in this church, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.